Welcome to The Hive Podcast, a new 10-part series with me, Natalie Nahai, exploring technology's impact on our personal, cultural and political lives. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube and join in the conversation with the hashtag HivePodcast. If you enjoy the show, please do give us a rating on iTunes as it helps spread the word and makes it easier for other people to also find this content. And now for the show. Jeff White is an investigative tech journalist whose exclusives have covered everything from fraud in the online dating industry to the shadowy world of Russian cybercrime gangs. Alongside Glenn Wilkinson, he's the co-creator of The Secret Life of Your Mobile Phone, a live, interacting, phone-hacking stage performance, which was a sellout hit at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2017, which I also had the pleasure of sharing at the conference I ran a couple of years ago called Humanise the Web. Jeff primarily works with Channel 4 News and the BBC, with a focus on tech security, online crime, personal data and privacy, and he's just released a compelling new podcast with Audible called the Dark Web. It's an in-depth, journalistically rigorous current affairs investigation which explores the lawless, anonymous territory of the online world. In this episode, we'll be talking about the murky world of the dark web, the manipulative power of fake news, and the impact of tech on democracy and freedom. So let's kick off with your podcast. What inspired you to create it? Um... It's really interesting. So I've, I've covered the dark web since about 2010, I guess. Um, like a lot of journalists, Silk Road was my kind of introduction to the dark web, and that's how I got into covering it, and then covered it on and off, really, over the following uh, few years. <clears throat> Silk Road, the massive drug site on the dark web, went under as Bitcoin went through its, uh, its various machinations, and as we saw law enforcement try and make more moves into the dark web to, to enforce in that sort of space. Um, and I have to say, I, I was pretty proud of myself and I thought, hey, you know, I know all about this. I, I'm pretty hot on this. And then somebody came up with the idea of doing uh, a podcast. Audible wanted to do a podcast series, looked at the dark web, and I found out stuff I just had no idea uh, existed. I found out the backstory of the thing, which is absolutely crazy. Um what I find fascinating about it is, yes, there's all of the crazy stuff. There's the drugs, there's the guns, there's there's the images of child sexual abuse. There's all of that gritty and horrible stuff. What's interesting about it for me is at the heart, the dark web is a, is a psychological experiment. It gives you the cloak of anonymity online. It gives you invisibility online. Now, the people who invented it, they're not criminals. It was the US Navy. The US Navy developed this technology. The reason they did that wasn't so they could create a zone of criminality where people could be anonymous. The reason they did it was because they thought anonymity online was good. And they believed that human beings fundamentally will eventually use that cloak of invisibility, use that online power that they've been given for good. They will use it to keep themselves secure online. They will use it to evade censorship. The US Navy has a very rosy view of human nature and the battle (laughs) about whether you think humans are good or bad is being fought out really every day on the dark web. It's a space that can be used for good or ill. And the way we use it as human beings reflects how we are as human beings. So people on the dark web, they're not an alien race. They're, they're just human beings. They're like us. The dark web is us. It's what we do. 
when we think no one's watching. And so to put together a sort of 10 part series on that was just absolutely fascinating. So what were some of the most extraordinary things that you hadn't expected to encounter during this investigative piece? Um, what I found interesting was the, particularly the episode on images of child sexual abuse. Um, it's obviously it's a difficult area uh, to tackle. It's one that comes up time and time again when you look at the dark web. For me, the most striking thing was going to <clears throat> record with Bedford Police, Bedfordshire Police, who were very good, gave me access to their um, child abuse enforcement team. And it was just going in and seeing these people who deal with this stuff day in, day out. One of the most striking quotes was from a woman who <clears throat> was one of their, their their investigators. And she, they have, they're, they're inundated with work. For a start, they're inundated with just cases of people. But they're also inundated with evidence. If you think, you know, you can get a, a, a memory stick that fits inside your thumbnail, fits in the space of your thumbnail, and that can contain several million images. Think of how many places in your house you could hide that. So the police are having to search houses top to bottom to get this stuff. When they get any kind of device, they're having to strip it all down and work out where the images might be stored. They're just inundated with work. And, and, and what, this, what this investigator said was, you know, she, she would be in Tesco's or Sainsbury's and she'd be watching other people in the queue and thinking, maybe this is one of them. You know, the people they come across, they're not international criminals. They're people in their force area. You know, they will get cases of people who are living in their area as a police force. You know, you look around you and you sort of think, well, to what extent is this a common threat? Or, you know, we're inundated. Maybe there are more cases out there. So things like that really sort of stood out. But I have to say some of the crazy stuff. I mean, um, there is a My Little Pony dark website. <laughs> you know, the bronies, the guys who dress up as My Little Pony. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I've heard of this. The blokes who are really into My Little Pony and dress up. There's a whole dark web sort of site for those people, because obviously they, some of them don't want to be outed as being as being bronies. So they... They set up on the dark web. That was a revelation. That was weird. Um, <laughs> How marvellous. There was the, uh, the guitar lesson book. That was the weirdest one. So looking through all these websites, you just have lists of stuff that's for sale. And, and generally sites will specialise drugs, some of them specialise in guns, some of them specialise in hacking tools and so on. I was looking through and sandwiched between a listing for crystal meth and heroin <laughs> was a book on guitar lessons, Teach Yourself Guitar. And it just stopped me in my tracks. I mean, I quite quite why you need to sell a lot on the dark web, I'm not entirely sure, but clearly somebody did. It's like in for a penny, in for a pound. Fuck it, let's go for it. Exactly. He probably <laughs> emptying out his loft and thought, well, I've got crystal meth, I've got heroin, I've got a guitar book, I'll just, you know, somebody will want it. <laughs> so totally bizarre. So I think one of the things that's interesting about this particular show is the fact that you are a journalist. So you have all of these tools at your disposal to be able to dig into and uncover the truth behind the myths. Um what are some of the tools that you found most helpful in trying to figure out what exactly was going on? So was it expert reviews? Was it being able to do undercover um, research where you're taping stuff? Like what mm. for you was the most useful of the things that you're able to deploy? Um, depressingly, it's Google and Facebook. Um, I'd love oh. to tell you that, you know, as an investigative journalist, I have access to, to some extra level of stuff. Maybe other journalists do and I'm, I'm behind the times. In fact, other journalists do and I am a bit behind the times. But the vast majority of what I do is is very advanced, committed Googling and use of Facebook. Um, so, for example, the uh, the shooting that happened in Munich, um, the chap who went on a rampage, um, the police had sort of said, well, look, he, he, he got his weapon on the dark web. So obviously this became of interest to me when we did the episode about guns on the dark web. Um, what's interesting is if, you, if you're Googling the right terms, you're Googling the right way, you can come across the historic record of his online chats where he was trying to acquire the weapon. 
Um, and you can start to piece together if you're if you use the right forensic tools, you can start to piece together the websites on which these chats happened, even though they no longer exist. Um, you know, it's an object lesson that nothing dies online. You know, whatever you put online will stay there and stay there for a very long time. Um, and in terms of Facebook, it's it's remarkable how much data there is publicly available on Facebook. And I have to say, one of the things that I did a lot of um, was taking email addresses and putting them into Facebook and, and attaching them to a Facebook profile, which we now know Facebook has tried to stop people doing. And we now know that somebody somewhere, possibly multiple people, were doing on an industrial level on Facebook, something Facebook have now announced alongside the Cambridge Analytica hell that they're going through. So I found that interesting in that the investigative tools that I'm using um, were actually being deployed by other people for data scraping purposes. And there's an amazing site called StalkScan, um, where you can enter a profile ID, a Facebook profile ID, and it will give you everything that that person's got on Facebook. Now, the interesting thing is, often on Facebook, you can be super secure, you can you know lock down your profile and so on. But a friend of yours tags you in a picture, and that tag remains unless you delete it. So I might not be able to identify that person's Facebook profile to get their details, but I can map the network that goes around them, and I can see who they're friends with and where geographically their friends live and so on. So I find this interesting in terms of privacy that um, you can be as private as you like, but it's ultimately you've got to rely on your friends and your contacts, your networks to be as private as you are. And often that's not the case. Mm, it's almost like a way of triangulating someone. You just look at the net surrounding the fish and you can catch the fish. So I was going to say one of the things that, that Facebook is quite hard to secure, I think, is your profile picture. So your header picture and your profile picture, they are generally almost always public. I, I, I think they're public by default and, and difficult because obviously, you know, when you look up at a profile, it has to be a profile picture. So unlike other photographs, I don't think you can make those private. Now, what's interesting is the profile picture might be some anonymous shot, but the people who've liked it are often the actual genuine friends of the person who has set up the profile. So you can start through that public bit to map their friends out. It's, um, yeah. Just extraordinary. So I want to dive in a little bit to what you're saying about the dark web being almost like this great big psychological experiment. To what extent do you think that the more negative, cruel, sadistic aspects of our behaviour are something which the dark web facilitates? And to what extent do you think we're going to find whatever tools it is, whether it's a dark web or something else, to realise these things? How much do you think it helps us express them versus just, yeah, I don't know, expression versus encouragement, I think is kind of the question that I'm asking here. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I had the um, pleasure of being able to interview one of the sort of guys who developed the dark web for the US Naval Research Laboratory. You've got to realise when I say it's the US Navy, these aren't these aren't uniformed officers. These are, these are techies and mathematicians and physicists who work on behalf of the US Navy. Incredibly gifted bunch of people. They uh, GPS was one of you know one of the things they worked very hard on. So they you know a long track record on developing this technology. Um, and Paul Syverson, one of the chaps who was part of the original team uh, developing dark web tech. Um, when I pointed out that this has now, now been massively used for, you know, criminal behavior, he said, well, in the early days of the sort of 20th century, the police would turn up at crime scenes and the, the criminals were long gone, you know, thanks to this technology called the motor car. And usefully, we didn't outlaw the motor car. You know, his, his idea was that <clears throat> um, it's the classic argument of, you know, you can use a knife to slice vegetables, you can use a knife to stab somebody uh, uh, with, as we're finding out unfortunately, to a cost in the UK at the moment. Um, what I find interesting about that argument is, yes, you can design a knife and it can cut vegetables or it can stab people. But what if you designed a knife 
that was impervious to fingerprints um, that could cause harm that you'd never seen to a victim before and that would melt in water, leaving no trace. Oh, that's such a tangible image. <laughs> somebody, somebody might think, well, hang on. Yes, it can be used to slice vegetables, but the downside risk to that particular type of knife is such that actually uh, uh, we shouldn't allow it to be to be sold. And you've seen, you know, seen sort of these massive zombie killer knives being outlawed from, from Amazon. So I find that idea of, well, we just make the tools limit, of limited use. And there's a great quote from... I think it's Marshall McLuhan. The quote is is something along the lines of "We make we make our tools, and our tools make us." Mm. And I think anybody developing any kind of technology should have that probably tattooed somewhere on their body. You know, I feel in terms of web tech and in terms of internet technology, um, digital technology, we've gone firmly through the first stage, and I really now think we're deep into the second stage. We have developed these tools, and they are making us. They are building us and changing us. What concerns me is. The technology industry is full of people who, who are very good at the first part of that sentence. They're very good at making the tools. They're not quite so hot and uh, on the second part of the sentence that you know the tools are then going to make uh, uh, to make us. However, in terms of the dark web and the faith in humanity, there are good applications of the dark web. And so, for example, there's um, a thing called Secure Drop. If you want to leak information to a newspaper, uh, to a journalist like me. There are risks to that. As soon as you get in touch with a journalist, you've got to trust that journalist isn't already under surveillance, which, given the work me and people like me have done, it's, it's, that's a stretch, you know. Um, and you've also got to make sure that you're not under surveillance. So both sides have to be contacting each other in a really secure way. It's quite difficult to do. Newspapers are investing in this stuff called Secure Drop, which uses dark web technology. It forces people down a dark web route to pass information to journalists. The journalists can then pick up, and it, it almost removes... The journalists' fingers from the from the dials, if you like. That's dark web technology, and that's allowing people in repressive regimes to leak information. So there are there are good sides to this. I think part of this, and I'm slightly thinking out loud here, is is that um, sunlight is the best uh, uh, disinfectant. Is the classic quote. People behave well when they behave together. You know, the opprobrium you get from doing bad stuff in public will stop you doing that bad stuff. You know, the sense of public shaming, the sense of, you know, that's not on. With the dark web, the more anonymous you get, the further away from that kind of um, surveillance, further away from that kind of public surveillance you get, I I suspect that the easier it is for people to feel like they can do something bad with impunity. So I think you're always going to have this risk as you put people into anonymized situations and you give them an anonymity. You've always got this risk that they could uh, think, well, I'm, I'm free now. I'm free to do whatever I want. I guess the that's US Navy curious... view is this is a, that's an initial stage of exuberance where you're anonymous and you just go out and you do crazy stuff. And ultimately, you've done the crazy stuff and you'll settle down later on. Yeah, I hope that that's true. Because I think that the one thing that I worry about, this idea that same my same issue with religion, actually, is this idea that unless you create... Um, a dichotomy in someone's mind if you're good you'll be rewarded if you're bad you'll be punished and that um that kind of system is externalized so it's an externalizing force that will either meter out punishment or rewards based on your behavior is it doesn't encourage us to to tap into and develop our own inner ethical compass Mm. um and so i wonder with these sorts of challenges whether it is a question of educating people to become more empathetic to consider their impact on other people 
um, rather than legislating for it or creating good behaviour through hyper-surveillance because then that just robs us of the possibility for growth and humanity. And I think also some of the things that previously we've publicly shamed people for. So, for instance, um, if you're not of the same race and you're in a relationship, if you're not of opposing genders and you're in a relationship, if you're... Uh, divorce, any number of things that we're since hopefully in some places becoming a lot more wise about. A lot of these things that were previously publicly shamed have now become publicly um, acceptable. Mm, mm. And I, I wonder with that how how many other things that we now consider to be um, untoward will be permissible in the future and condoned. Mm. Um, and where that, where that grey line or edge is, because there are obviously some things that we will never want to condone, so violence against people, sexual harassment, assault. Yes, yeah. It is an interesting point, I think, to pick up on the point you make about um, things that used to be uh, looked down upon in society no longer being looked down upon in society. Um, there's a really relevant point, because the people who develop these technologies, um, Google, Facebook, Twitter, so on, um, generally live in a geographically very small part of the world. They live, you know, on the west coast of the US, generally male, generally white, generally middle class. These people have grown up in a world where life is groovy, where it's okay to be lots of different things, where there, there is no sort of government level or society level repression of, you know, aspects of your sexuality, aspects of your religion and so on. So I think when they design these technologies, sort of baked into the DNA of it is, is this idea of, well, why would you hide anything? You don't have to, because everything's fine. Um, you know, Evgeny Morozov makes a great point about what would have happened if the Google Street View cars had been sent out by China or by Belarus, the country that he comes from. We'd have a slightly different view of it. So yeah. we're sort of putting a lot of faith uh, 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 in this. Um, but I do think there's, I do think there's an interesting issue around what we find acceptable and and what is acceptable behavior i think there's a sense um in the sort of more febrile chat areas of the internet things like reddit and 4chan and so on there's this sense that that what they're doing is providing that sunlight sunlight being the best disinfectant thing they are subjecting people to robust interrogation of their views and if you can't stand they well then you shouldn't hold that view uh, and I think a lot of the sort of Twitter interaction you get from people is that of like, look, you're putting this view out there, you're publishing yourself, you're going into public, you've got to be able to defend your view. And I think the people who who are regarded as trolls, sometimes when you hear them speaking, they say, well, I'm not trolling somebody, I'm just subjecting them to the kind of interrogation you should get as a as a, a person in public life. But that goes into the whole p- breakdown between public and private, that, you know, increasingly we live in public, our private space has diminished, our public space has grown. If the corollary to that is, well, now you're in public, we can throw things at you and, 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 and challenge you, that's not going to encourage people to, to, to enjoy that public space uh, anymore. Hmm. So where do you think responsibility comes in? Because I know earlier you were talking about the responsibility of the tool makers, hmm. um, but there's also the responsibility of the tool users. So those hmm. of us who are using these platforms to communicate with each other, etc. Um, my sense is that from... For those of us who grew up without smartphones, without the internet, so I was like, I think I was about 16 when I got my first phone and it was not smart and there was maybe snake on it two years later. (laughs) Um, But there was definitely in my mind a distinction between a life lived publicly and a life lived privately Mm. and what kind of caution one should take when speaking or broadcasting in a public sense. So being 
sure to, to think before I speak to make sure that I'm being as clear as possible so as mm. not to say something which I may not mean or may regret or doesn't represent my views. But I think a lot of the people coming up now who didn't have that sort of distinction growing up are finding out in a much harder way. Um, what are your thoughts about the ways in which tech is now being used now that social media platforms have actually aged quite a bit, that they're not in the first stage, it's like the second stage which you're talking about? Um, are people wising up to the fact that if they don't take responsibility at a personal level, there is a great cost that can potentially be had? It's interesting. I, um, it depends what age groups you speak to. It depends where they are geographically. It depends what their sort of experiences have been. I have to say, um, the um, mobile phone show that you alluded to in the introduction, we, we took that to the Edinburgh Festival last year. And my sense for that was we would get young people coming along. Uh, so we were, you know, flyering young people and targeting young people. Um, and I sort of thought we'd get a kind of hip, groovy young crowd. And actually, <laughs> interestingly, it skewed a lot older than I thought it was. You know, 50% of our audience reliably each night was made up of sort of gen generally women, actually, in their sort of 50s and 60s, sometimes 70s, who, who actually wanted to understand this stuff. Perhaps that's a reflection of the fact they maybe don't understand how their phones work and they just wanted kind of, you know, to understand a bit more. Perhaps, you know, looking at it kindly, young people know all of this stuff. But, but I don't think that's the case. I think I think the older people um are more curious more inquisitive that's partly a function of being older you do get more inquisitive you do get more circumspect about things um among younger people you get this slightly schizophrenic and I, i've not done any sort of quantitative research on this but just when interviewing people speaking to the people we've done the show for which is thousands of people when you speak to people afterwards you get this kind of slightly schizophrenic approach from young people where on the one hand there is a deep distrust of technology you know they 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 do ask questions about how can I stop the surveillance? You know how you know how much do Facebook know about me? There's a there's a sense there that they are concerned about, and they do get it, and they do know that there's a there's a data a land grab going on. But you also get this sense of oh well, you know what can you do about it? You know I don't really care. You know who cares who sees my who, who sees my nudes and all that kind of thing. And I just worry that we're slightly sleepwalking into a situation where all the data's gone. It's gone out the door. We don't really know what's happening to it, and it's too late. And I get asked all the time. I got asked the other day, "What's the problem then? You know, what's so? What would you see as the harm of all this data scraping?" And honest answer is often, "I don't know." Hmm. But 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 just for me as a journalist, not knowing is the problem. You know, not knowing yeah. what's going on, and also the fact that by the time we do know, it will be too late. You can't get the data back. It's it's once it's gone, it's gone. Um, yeah. I, th I think one of the tricky things with that is that um, often the people who flag the uh, or ring the alarm at an earlier stage get called out as being paranoid. I remember in uh, the early days, in 2012, I've mentioned this a few times during this uh, series, but in 2012 there's this massive study that was done by Cambridge University looking at how to extrapolate psychometric data from Facebook likes. And I remember back then thinking, oh, fuck, that's it. This, <laughs> this is basically Pandora's box that we've opened. And that's when I chose to come off Facebook. And people thought I was nuts. They're like, why would you come off? No one's going to do anything bad with it. Mm. That was, what, six years ago? Mm. And now only six, actually, I would have thought it would happen sooner, but only six years after that, all of these um, uh, stories are breaking, not mm. only about people or companies like Cambridge Analytica, but all of the other stuff that's being done. And these are just the ones that are being caught. So, mm. like, we're mm. not even talking about all the agencies that are working beyond the scope of, mm. well, yeah, outside of the public domain. 
Um, and yet, say in the early days, you kind of say, well, maybe it's a good idea to tape up your mic and not be on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are like, well, you're paranoid. So, well, no, <laughs> really not. It's actually quite yeah. um, sensible. <laughs> Those of us who stuck bits of blue tack over our webcams uh, in the last few years were, were quite cheered by seeing Mark Zuckerberg's doing exactly the same thing. Um, that, was a, that was a great picture. But I just, um, in terms of the, what you've talked about, in terms of the, the Facebook data scraping, um, I really hope this doesn't come true. And I have, you know, I have a reason about faith in humanity and, and, and you can overplay this stuff. You, you know, we have a life offline. We all, you know, generally we all have friends that we hang out with in real life. And it's, you know, we're not in that kind of living like the Borg situation yet. Um, yet. <laughs> and hopefully we won't, won't ever get there. But there is, there is a, a quite dark and troubling future that I, I, I see whereby because there's so much information accessible to so many people at so uh, at such a level and because um that information is so open to manipulation you do get to the stage where your ability as a human being to assess what's true and to trust your judgment yeah starts to erode and what's interesting is um people tend to forget russia you know f- for decades lived under a regime whereby you didn't know what was you kind of felt you knew what was true but you were constantly being told different things Mm. other truths by the administration um russia's just very used to playing in that space russian people are very used to the idea that you can hold competing views and they can sit with that quite happily and they can just argue the the world's double think (laughs) yeah um and that's not i don't I don't mean that as a pejorative thing against Russian people. It's just a function of, of the way that the, the government and the information system worked. What worries me is you look at the US and you look at this idea of alternative facts um, and you look at Trump calling out fake news and you look at the manipulation of Twitter and Facebook. And it worries me that we get to a, an extreme relativist position as regards truth, as regards our judgment of truth, where we're just open to manipulation and I don't know what you do about that. I'm not the only one wanging on about this, but I, I do worry that part of the situation of describing people letting their data go is that your data will then be reflected back at you and used to not even alter your opinions, just to try and confuse you. You know, people get worried when they're confused. They're more pliable. You can offer them a solution that seems sensible, that's radical, and they'll go for it. And frankly, you know, a, a lot of what happened around Germany in the 30s was this, you know, was this idea of, Things are confusing. Things are worrying. You know, we've got a solution. Here it is. It's radical, but we need to take action because the world is, is a terrible place. I, I, we've seen this run in history before. Mm. Yeah, there we go. We're, we're 27 minutes in. I've already talked about the Nazis. That's how long. No, but I think <laughs> this is, <laughs> I think it's, um, I think it's something which actually we don't want to think about because we feel like we've evolved beyond this in our great liberal societies. But we forget that actually the values that we have so come to enjoy and take for granted are things that many millions of people have died for. And actually, at some point, it does become incredibly relevant and poignant to think about the the cultural context in which we're living, the historical context in which we're living, and how not to walk into a similar situation that we've seen before that is actually avoidable. And it's this sense of just being, um, kind of just, just relinquishing our ability to consider in a deep and meaningful way the situation that we're in and whether we want to go into a different direction and I think well, the quote that's been bandied around a lot by Hannah Arendt is this idea of the banality of evil that it happens in a creeping kind of way in a way where we become a bit confused we relinquish our agency and we sleepwalk into mm. something absolutely 
extraordinarily catastrophic. And I think there are enough people this time around ringing the alarm bell going, guys, okay, wake up now. We need to start making different choices. Um, and yet on the flip side, I'm also acutely aware of the fact that if we don't paint a positive picture of what's possible, mm. it's very easy to slip into this sense of complete apathy to go, well, we're all fucked. Let's just not bother. Mm. Mm. So it's kind of weighing the the realism of the dystopia that we might be walking into with an alternative positive view of something mm. that we construct together as a community and having a balance and a dialogue between those positions so that we can create something that actually we want yeah. to exist within. And I have to say, you know, this isn't related to tech, but in terms of journalism, I think we've got absolutely a, a role to play in this. And what's been very um, cockle-warming about this whole thing is the fact that, you know, it's it's journalists and particularly British journalists, you know, notably The Guardian and Channel 4 News and the Cambridge Analytica case, who who are calling this stuff out. You know, it's it's what I love about the kind of, there's a great ironic twist, you know, that, that, that Trump thinks, tells people that the media is biased and tells people they shouldn't believe the media and tells people the media is, is, is redundant now. And actually, um, people, I, I, I believe people are increasingly turning to journalists, you know, those respected older, more traditional sources of information yeah. to get the facts of what's going on and, to, and to, for somebody yeah. to defend them against these decisions that are being made and the, and the, the confusion that I've talked about, the sort of factual confusion, reality confusion, um, there's a lot of responsibility there for, for journalists, though, and I think we need, you know, if my view is we've got to back away from comment, we've got to back away from blogging, you know, there's my big thoughts on this. No, sod it. Your job is to find the facts and your job is to find the objective truth that you can justifiably put out there and say, this is just true. You know, when the Cambridge Analytica story dropped, it, it's true. You know, it, it wasn't bits of it have been denied, bits have been argued about, but fundamentally facts were found, those facts are true, and those facts stand and they become part of the public record. And then, you know, as journalists, you sort of build on that. So there's a, you know, I think there's a rosy view potentially there. Yeah, it's almost like a renaissance. I think in, in many ways, when you get leaders who are that extraordinary, um, you end up with people realising that they have to fight for the things that they believe in. So if they want better news, if they want access to the facts, if they want freedom and democracy and rights, then they have to collectively stand up for those things. And I think in some sense, that's absolutely the positive side of everything that we're seeing now. It's, well, amidst all the confusion, what is it that we want to build? Is there a potential here that amidst the chaos, those of us with the clearest visions can create something truly magnificent? And I think absolutely that's possible mm -hmm. um, but i don't know I, you know it's also, an interesting yeah. question as to how tech feeds into this how technology feeds into this um i just don't believe that you're gonna so what I would, what would be really interesting is if you could put um a neg ferret my mate has this term the neg ferret neg ferrets are people who just ferret out negativity wherever they go she describes it as somebody who goes on a package holiday with a camera hoping to film the swimming pool full of poo or whatever so they can then <laughs> T you know, tell the papers about it and make back, you know, not even the money that they paid for the holiday, you know, the neg ferret. I love this idea of a neg ferret. <laughs> I wonder whether you could implant a neg ferret into every technology company. So as soon as they invent something or develop some new thing or have some new feature, the person in the corner goes, oh, well, actually, you could use that to do this. I just feel that voice of like the voice of negativity. And it, again, it comes down to where these people are. They work in these environments where, you know, if you can code, you can liberate the world, you know. That's great. It's all great to have this positivity, but I just think you need somebody in the corner of the room who's just Eeyore, you know, just sits there. <laughs> no, it's going to be rubbish. You do realise this information could be scraped, you know. I would love to be a neg ferret. I'd be such a happy neg ferret. <laughs> It'd be amazing. I am effectively a professional neg ferret. I mean, like, you know, like... <laughs> that needs to be on your handle. <laughs> but I, so, you know, you yeah. need somebody pointing out these potential risks and problems. Um, I just don't think technology companies are going to do it. I think it's it's... 
that just you don't want no people in the technology company. You know, it, it really falls it falls to us, you know, journalists on a professional level to start spotting this stuff, but individuals to kind of look at the settings that they have on different services to kind of audit the apps that they have to work out, you know, is it is it really that important that I'm on WhatsApp? Is that worth giving my entire contacts book to WhatsApp for? You know, and there is a responsibility to each other. So the reason I don't install WhatsApp on my on my phone, my personal phone, is I haven't asked the people in my address book permission. So part of the terms and conditions with WhatsApp is that you give them you give WhatsApp access to your contacts book, and you say, "I guarantee that you're you're okay to do this to access all these people's numbers." Well, no, that's not true. I've got friends who don't have WhatsApp who aren't on there. I haven't asked their permission. So we, we've got a sort of herd immunity, herd responsibility type of thing, I think, to each other to, to, to take a bit more responsibility. And I think with that, because it's so complex, if we're talking about networks and it's very labour and time intensive, um, to have ways in which, like, com, we need to set something like this up that can audit <laughs> these things um, and give us alternatives that, mm. we can, uh, that we can move towards. I have three questions that I would like to close um, our conversation with the first is given where we are and everything that's been going on what is your greatest concern for the future um that people just switch off and stop asking and stop questioning you know look you're responsible now it's your job i'm sorry but it is your job now to get involved and look at these things and look a bit more deeply um if you give up you give power away to people you don't know and whose motives you don't understand What's your greatest hope then for the future? Um, that my bet on humanity is right, and that, and that, and that it's okay, and that the hand wringing will cause changes, but ultimately, fundamentally, people will still go out to the pub with each other or to the coffee shops, have a drink with each other, chat to people they wouldn't normally chat to. You know that uh, uh, there's a lot of that going on in the world, and I hope that still goes on. <laughs> okay, and if you could give people one action that they can take to fight for a more rosy future, what would that be? One action they can take to fight for a more rosy future. Um, every time you switch on your phone or your computer for the next week, every time you boot up a particular app, you log into a particular service, just take a look at it, ask whether you need it, ask whether the settings can be changed to make it a bit more private. Just do that for a week and just each time you use something, go, hang on, do I, do I need this? What are the settings on this? Is this actually private? Can I delete some stuff from it, some older stuff? Um, that's what you need to be doing. Is that, I'm sorry, but constant vigilance is what we've got to do now um, because we've been given these great tools and part of the deal with the power and the joy of those tools is the responsibility to use them effectively and to know what they do and to control them. Um, the, power's in, the power's in our hands and that does mean we have to actually use it. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can find resources and links on the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do give us a rating on iTunes and join in the conversation with the hashtag Hive Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.